Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So today I want to welcome to the channel uh, a gentleman who I've been very excited to have a conversation with. His name is David Berselli, and he has quite an extensive background in uh, traumatology and uh, social work and so forth. But his his education is he has a doctorate degree in social work. He also has a to remind myself because there's so much here. He has a um, master's of arts in theology as well. And he also is a board certified psychoneurologist. And well, we can ask a little bit about what that is as, uh, as we go. Uh, but the most important thing as far as what the reason I wanted to interview him here is that he is the the man who elucidated or characterized the process or technique we call TRE, trauma releasing exercise or tension releasing exercise. So he's the essentially the founder of that phraseology and the process itself. Uh, but as he'll probably tell you, he's not not the founder of the underlying process because it's it's quite natural, actually. So Anyway, I wanted to introduce David and, and just say, hey, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. I'm sure we're going to touch on some very, very interesting stuff. Thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to our discussion together. Um, first of all, I just wanted to ask you uh, about your background in um, and training that led you to uh, spending some time in the South Bronx and even meeting and working with Mother Teresa. Could you give us a little bit about that? Well, I was living in New York at the time, and that's when I was studying my degree in theology, obviously to try to work for the disadvantaged, et cetera. And so I lived in the South Bronx in New York, which is a very difficult place to live at the time that I was there. And I was trying to understand what is poverty, what is being disadvantaged, et cetera, because I didn't grow up that way. And it was a fascinating experience, actually, learning about humanity and how humanity struggles to survive. And in the context I was in, try to put it into a theological perspective. What does it mean in terms of somebody's belief system? And uh, how is that belief system either fractured or even strengthened because of being disadvantaged and living among poverty or um, extreme difficult life situations? And so I found it all fascinating, both in terms of the people I was living with, as well as for myself experiencing all that. In that process, because I was living in the South Bronx at the time, and it was a very difficult time, Mother Teresa and her sisters came to the South Bronx because her whole concept was to work with the poorest of the poor. And in New York City at that time, it was in the South Bronx. So they wanted to find a residence in the South Bronx, bring her sisters there, and they were going to do the same work we were doing, but they do it at a more difficult level than I did. And so when she came to town, I um, drove her and her sisters around looking for an apartment that they could rent, and they ended up renting a place that was close to where I was living. So I ended up working with them a great deal. Mm. Now, the thing that was very interesting and this was very important too. I had been around a lot of people, and a lot of people that I would call spiritual or grounded or people who had expanded consciousness. What fascinated me about Mother Teresa 
was she was different. And I don't know how to describe that, but she inhabited humanity or her humanity in a way that was so deep and so different than anybody else I experienced. I was completely curious. It's like, what power does she have? Where does she come from inside herself? How did she ever find such a place of centeredness to do such deep, difficult work and not at all be sort of ungrounded by this work? So it fascinated me. And there was one time when I was sitting in the chapel with her. We were just sitting together and it was quiet. Nobody else was there. I don't remember why. But And I wasn't even talking to her, just sitting next to each other. And she turned and she asked me a question. And so we started talking a little bit. And in that moment of talking, I could feel that I was actually being drawn into, for lack of a better word, an energy field that she manifested. Mm -hmm. And I tried to pull back out of it and I could actually feel this pulling and invitation going back and forth. So this woman demonstrated to me that she was a completely different human being on the planet. Mm. Now, imagine having that experience because that then is what I have to try to emulate. Because if one human being can do this, every human being can do this. And so she sort of set me up to say, here's what humanity is capable of. Are you willing to go that far? Oh my goodness. That is such an incredible story and so powerful and so many things you touched on there. Um, but I, I just want to say the ref, the re reflection I have about your interaction with Mother Teresa and just the way you describe her moving through life, moving through the world, um, it is, that's, I, I think, what Christ's true message was. And, and he lived it. He lived a life where he was always in contact with what some people would consider the dregs of society. And yet, um, he didn't, we could almost say like he didn't spiritually bypass, right? He, he was right there in the trauma, in the pain by choice. Uh, uh, you know, he didn't hang out with the spiritual leadership. He was right where the pain and suffering was. And he showed that that is the ultimate, um, uh, manifestation of the spiritual journey. It's he, he started almost at the end. And it sounds like mother Teresa started at the end, as far as her manifestation in this world, it's uh, astounding. Yeah, it was actually astounding only because I had the rare opportunity of this moment in life where this powerful human being, and I didn't idolize her or adore her or anything. I was really just helping her to find an apartment. I knew she was famous and everything, but it wasn't that important to me at the time. So I had this powerful experience where she was without effort. She was demonstrating me how to live deeply in humanity, which was the paradox you just spoke about. You can go to the depths of humanity and its pain and still stay completely centered and grounded and what she would call spiritual. It's almost like it was the perfect blend of the two. And without trying, she just sort of um, witnessed to me, okay, here's what Here's the, here's what humanity can do. Are you willing to try to go this far in your humanness? That is so beautiful. And and she planted a seed there. That transmission, the flavor of that transmission yeah. is so, I, I, I love it. And it's because it, in a sense, it flies under the radar, meaning 
you didn't approach her as this exalted being trying to get something from her. You sat down in a church next to her and then it snuck up on you. It came in oh, completely. the way you didn't expect. And yet that yeah. probably, uh, it sounds like, had a, quite an influence on everything else that played out in your well, life. It completely confused me because if it had been planned or if I idolized or adored her, I would not have um, gotten that experience because it would have been filtered um, by my own ego things. I was just sitting there trying to be a nice guy, helping her find a place to live. That was all. And so I was unfiltered by that. And that's how it could sort of go inside of me is the best word I can describe. You know, Joseph Campbell, you've probably seen his work and maybe you've seen his interviews with Bill Moyers and all. He talks about the the jester archetype or the trickster god or the trickster archetype that comes up in these Native American cultural myths and all these all over. That's exactly the movement of the of the sort of jester archetype. You know, you see this. Most people would look at her. She's a nun and she's a very well-known nun and this sort of almost like um, unapproachable figure, perhaps in some sense. And so you, and you didn't even have an expectation. And that was the perfect setup to just put something in you. And as you said, it confused you. And that's so beautiful how the psyche can be opened up in a different way and that seed gets planted. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, like you just said, that sort of set me up. Whether I liked it or not, it set me up for a whole lot of stuff that was to follow after that. Wow. So uh, I have one other follow-up question and going back a little bit to the beginning. And uh, I was curious what, as you said, you didn't grow up around these these like low socioeconomic status situations and poverty and all of it. I also want to say the South Bronx during, this was late 70s, early 80s? Yeah. That was the highest crime rate New York has ever seen and yeah. the highest area of crime. So not just poverty, but serious crime and danger. Very serious crime, yeah. 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 So what do you think inclined you to do this? Did you have an experience early in life or did you just always feel like of sort of living out of the heart in a way that you could you could go out and sort of help the world or give to the world? What what led you to that? Well, I actually had um, joined a Catholic religious community called Mary Knoll. And I was, that's why I was doing my theology studies. And so I joined them because they didn't work in the United States, first of all, because I wanted to live outside the country. I've had, I had some experiences early in, um, in my life living outside of the U.S. and I loved it. So I wanted to live outside the country and this, this, uh, Catholic organization did it, and I could join as a lay person. So I, I wasn't a religious, quote, religious person. I was lay. And so one of the things they said to us is, well, we are going to work with people around poverty and um, disadvantaged life situations. And I was studying what was called liberation theology. And so it was like, all right, you need to have this experience now, before we send you overseas to a country where you're going to end up living there, you need to know now if you can and want to do this. So they deliberately set me into the most difficult place um, that had both crime and poverty so that I could live the experience, which I embraced completely. I don't know why, but even as a young child, every time I get into a situation where I don't know anything... Oftentimes, I don't know the language, the culture, the religion, the traditions, the way to behave. I find that fascinating, not frightening. I find it amazing. Uh, and so 
going to the South Bronx, although I knew how difficult that was there, it was amazing. It's like it blew my mind, basically expanded my consciousness to include things I had never experienced in my life. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, how, um, no, by that time, had you already had your, your education in social work? I was in the middle of that as well. So I was studying theology and clinical social work at the time. Okay. And what kind of work specifically were you doing in that area? Were you doing, um, working with people through poverty issues? Were you working like as a therapist or? I was working mostly with people who were addicted to drugs. I uh, worked a lot with a lot of prostitutes who also happened to be addicted to drugs or alcohol. So I was doing that type of work, which is quote, social work, if you will. But that was the population I was most attracted to, mm -hmm. to try to figure out how to, how to help them out of this cycle mm -hmm. that was just almost impossible to get out of. Yeah. Yeah. How, how is your, I'm curious because I've also in clinical medicine and training interacted with exactly these populations, homeless people, um, people who have unfortunately had to result to prostitution to feed drug habits and, and addicts that are homeless and so forth. How did you feel around people like that, just on a personal level? Did, did you feel connected, compassion? Did you feel, uh, how'd you feel? You know, it's quite interesting. I was actually very surprised. I felt when I talked to them, and these were even violent people, when I just talked to them, it felt like, oh, I was just talking to anybody. It, it, their history or their behaviors somehow didn't affect just the human kindness interaction that I was doing. So I knew I was a social worker in the area, and I would just go around and talk to people, even when I knew what they might have just been involved in or what they were going to do. I just met them as human beings. I had no judgment on them because I don't know how difficult their lives are and what drove them to the point that they're at. And they responded immediately to just non-judgment. So I just became a friend to them all. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that 100%. I remember being maybe a bit surprised when I would work with, uh, as a medical student with a homeless population, uh, I was really astounded how how well I connected, actually, and how I felt really quite familiar with, with, with people who are going through this kind of stuff. Part of it is because there's no pre, there's often no pretense. When you have, right. when you're just dealing with the most basic challenges in ways that, and your life is so, you know, in one sense chaotic and all this stuff, it's like someone like that really just is really looking for someone who cares, who, uh, and they, they're looking for help and they're, but they're also just trying to survive and there's just no pretense there. And something about that, I, I would really connect with people um, in those situations very yeah. intimately, honestly. I think that it was amazing to me. It was just raw humanity. And so, like you said, you take the pretense out and you just have people who are looking for a little bit of human kindness and honesty. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the level with which we we met each other. Mm -hmm. And that was easy, actually. If I had tried to change them or I was trying to do something or I came with some pretense other than what can I do to help or let's just sit and talk. If I came with something else, I think there would have been, it would have been met with resistance. Mm. I just came with the openness to say, look, I'm here. What do we want to talk about? Or what can I help you with? What do you want to do? Et cetera. And then they just sat down and were human. That's all. Beautiful. 
And what a gift to give anyone you come in contact with to be just very simply available without anything else, without your own agendas. The world would be transformed if we could all sort of just learn to do this even 50% of the time, you know? Right. I think your key word is simplicity. It just be simple, simply available. That's all. So it doesn't take anything else, no education or nothing. It just takes sort of a little bit of an open heart. Mm. This is making, it's almost making me tear up. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was like experiencing that. Um, it, it, and, and that happened to me many times. When I would hear their stories, I would tear up listening to them. They could see that I wasn't afraid to cry or I wasn't inhibited to tear up in front of them. But they saw I really hurt their pain and their struggle. And that bonded us only because it was so sad mm -hmm. that these human beings were going through this. They got stuck in this cycle. Mm -hmm. It was really sad. And they could tell I respected that mm. and how hard it was. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what What do you think? This is a bit of a tangent, but this is such a juicy conversation. What do you think gets in the way for for some people of being able to connect at that level, especially with somebody who is, say, just has had worse circumstances than 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 we have? Yeah, I think it, we have to look at two things here. Trauma, which causes us to put up a barrier of trusting anybody anymore, um, and society, it contributes to falseness and barriers and pretentiousness. Our whole social structure is designed around that, so that when you meet somebody who isn't that, who actually goes below societal norms and is just raw and vulnerable and available as a human being, People respond to that immediately. They can feel it. It's not a thought. They can tell you're different from somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're really stuck in this area of severe trauma for some people, which is individualized maybe from family or whatever, or where they grew up, et cetera. But also our social construct continues to reinforce falseness. Mm -hmm. And so it prevents that availability of authenticity. I think that what you said there is so so right on the money that our, our social construct, certainly aspects of it, and I would say a lot of aspects of it, it does it reinforce and even reward a certain kind of inauthenticity perhaps or or an ability to actually disconnect yourself from your own suffering or your own trauma. And what, I, what I'm reflecting on is that partially why that barrier can seem to be there. It's not a barrier, but with, with someone who's uh, maybe not in touch with their trauma is that someone who's homeless, drug addicted, and just living moment to moment, in one sense, they are more honest about their trauma. Whereas we can have very high functioning people and there are very high functioning people in this world who have a lot of trauma, but it's completely buried. And, yeah. you know, you know, that's a great point because there were many times that I would see someone who had just shot up or something like that. And they're in the street and they're, they're really, sort of in the days, I would just go sit beside them. There was all, I just sit down in the street, usually in an alley or something like that. I had nothing I wanted to do but be next to this human being, which I learned from Mother Teresa. Mm. Just, just be with them. That's all. So I would go sit next to them and they'd like slump over, maybe put their head on my shoulder or something. But like you said, there was no 
pretense at all. They had no availability to that. They were raw and human right there. And I just felt if I sit next to them, maybe just even put my hand on their shoulder or just let them sit next to somebody who isn't going through what they're going through, maybe my, for lack of a better term, my vibrational frequency, my energetic field, whatever, could help support them while they went through it. So I would just sit there for an hour. For me, that was my ministry. That was being a social worker. I didn't have to talk to them. They couldn't talk, but they could feel my presence if I held their hand or put my hand on their leg while we're sitting on the ground. They knew somebody was there. And then we always end up saying in their drug sort of state, oh, you're good. You are a nice person. It's like all they could get out were these little things that they knew I was there. And all I would have to reply back is, you're a good person too. I'm going to stay here with you. We'll get through this. That was it. It wasn't anything complicated. It wasn't master's degree level dialogue. It was just, I'm going to hold your hand or sit next to you. Make sure you're touching me so you know a human being is beside you while you go through this. If I, if I, if I, could, if I could somehow make sure that every therapist, aspiring therapist, clinician, uh, psychiatrist who's going to go into practice and work around people of, of all stages and levels of, of dysfunction and pain and all of it. Could he listen to what you just said, that five minutes of what you just said? That would that would be really, that's if I, if I could tell anyone who's going to work around disadvantaged people, people who are suffering, people who are traumatized, addicts, it's what you just said. It's just so simple, but you kind of have to get through your own stuff to be able to even just be that available. Just that, was, that they will know the difference. That's the real key. We, I had to do my own work to get that simple. Hmm. That's where all the the trickery was, not in what's out there and how to be a good social worker. It was what's inhibiting or preventing me from doing that. Hmm. And that's what I used to teach at the university. I just tried to say to everybody, if you want to be a good social worker, go sit in the street. Go there. Just sit there. Don't talk about anything. Just befriend somebody. That's all. Be their friend, and you'll learn exactly how to be a social worker. That is so, so powerful, so beautiful. Um, we could I could go on about this for for like literally all day long. So this is my this is my favorite topic. I think actually, um, where the rubber really meets the road, whether it's through we're talking about awakening, whether we're talking about being a therapist or they're talking about social work or just being a person who is open to the suffering of the world. Uh, with all that said, um, I, I, I want to move a little bit down the road toward trauma. So let's talk about trauma in the ways that you work with it. Now, can you just maybe give us a, a sort of entry point definition of what trauma is to the human? Well, there's a couple different little entry points to it. Trauma is something that overwhelms us that makes us have to activate some sort of protective mechanism. So we're not just in our normal state. I have to do something to protect my protect me from that experience. So that's part of it, something that's going to overwhelm my normal mode, okay? So that could be severe trauma or mild trauma, okay? And it also means that safety isn't present. See, so 
Because if safety was present, I might not have had to build such an overwhelming defense mechanism. See, so it's two things. It's something that's affecting me from outside, and there's some place where safety is not available for me to, to protect that. So then I have to do that myself. So as a little child, as an example, if there's a loud noise or even thunder and a little one-year-old gets frightened, mommy or daddy are there to hold them and hug them. So the thunder is a trauma, but safety was present. So then it's not going to be so traumatizing. Um, if they're not there, or let's say the adult is abusive to the child, as an example, well, there's some something from outside that child has to create a defense mechanism to protect, and there was no safety present. So that would those two things basically contribute to what is trauma. Okay. Yeah, that's very helpful. Then let's talk about the coping mechanisms. Uh, um, what what range of coping mechanisms are we talking about from disassociation or emotional repression to to more, let's say, what might look like functional coping mechanisms, and yet there's still a degree of avoidance right. of actual trauma? Okay, so if we take Stephen Porges' work into consideration, which is the polyvagal theory, and he starts out with a ventral vagal nerve. That's sort of our baseline. And when something um, is disturbing to us, th that ventral vagus nerve, which is part of the, the uh, parasympathetic nervous system, will leave that and will go into the sympathetic nervous system where we'd have fight or flight. We're all familiar with that. And when, it, when that gets high enough, fight or flight, we'll go into some sort of terror response. Um, some uh, some overwhelming emotions, screaming, shouting, terror, anxiety, high anxiety, etc. But if none of those defenses protect us, then we go into what he calls the dorsal vagal response, which again is the second part of the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, in the dorsal vagal response, we have freezing, dissociation, numbness, and what's been recognized as fawning. And fawning is where you um, appease the abuser, if you will. And so that up there, the top of this sort of curve, this bell curve, the freezing, dissociation, um, numbness, and fawning is by and large where most of our population lives, and they're completely unaware of it because you don't know if you're numb until you start to have feelings, see? Yes. You don't know that you're fawning because you're so accustomed to doing that, you think that that's, quote, being nice. <laughs> See, and that it is being nice, but it's being nice by giving up yourself mm -hmm. for fear of whoever it is that you, you, you develop that relationship for. And so that those are the defense mechanisms we have. Now, they're all very, very good because we need them throughout all of life. So I'm excited that we have them. We just have to know when we're in them and how to come out of them. So we can come back down to this ventral vagal state of real calmness, integratedness, and groundedness. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. So the, the well, I just want to reflect a couple aspects of it. Um, and I was hoping, I haven't read about this polyvagal theory in the detail. You just mentioned it, but I do know about it. I was hoping when when we get get past all of the anger and the trying the yelling shouting all that you would mention freeze because I think that's exactly what freeze and dissociation but I love that you said fawning 
And I only recently even heard that that term used. And it's something I've noticed, and I, I have often just called it people-pleasing, but I've pointed out that it's far more inauthentic than we realize, and oh, yeah. we don't, and we're unconscious to it, actually. It's a, it's a yeah. whole beha- uh, belief and behavioral system that we, many people, and probably all people to some degree, learn to build into our personality and our persona. But it feel, it's like, you know, when you have small talk with someone, the, the inauthentic conversations we have, a lot of times some of that's going on, and we don't even know it. We know it's yeah. wrong, but we don't have no idea how to address it, right? We don't right. Really- that this is leftover, well, trauma. It's leftover um, overwhelm that we've buried in the system and learned to build a behavior around it. Yeah, and then that behavior then becomes our personality, and then that's what we call the personality of trauma. Mm. And so we live that way. And because it helps us survive, we don't challenge ourselves to come out of it. We continue to live that way until we either get frustrated or get a divorce or whatever, because it no longer works. Mm. It was only for a temporary period of time. We're only supposed to use these for the trauma. After the trauma's over, we're supposed to get rid of those defenses, come back to our groundedness. But what if that trauma lasts 18 years as a child? See, now you're you're destined to live that unless you become aware for another at least five or 10 years. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing too. And uh, very sadly, many children go through trauma after trauma after trauma and they they live in this world and it's not only that they have an identity built around all of these various stages of evolution of the child's mind and heart the the teenager the the young adult all of those identities are completely intertwined with this this yeah. trauma and some fawning you know things and all of it um and so it, it can take it can be quite a bit to unwind but obviously where we are in this conversation being aware of it is the first step if you're not aware of it you know, you may just luck out and, and come into contact with some modality, but being being really aware of like looking at yourself, going, "Wow, yeah, I, I learned all, I learned to do all of that. I learned to right. press. I learned to, you know, all of it." Well, sadly, what I think happens in terms of being aware of it, most people don't become aware of it. That's where we use drug or alcohol or behaviors because something's wrong. And we don't know that something's wrong. We just know we're seeking pleasure, which is what that gives us, because we don't have happiness. If you're living up in that state, you're not really happy. <laughs> you're simply placating people. And like you said, your court is sort of going along with them, but inside you're completely empty and lonely. So what we do is we try to fill emptiness and loneliness with substances or behaviors that will produce temporary pleasure, but they can never produce happiness because happiness can only occur when you come back down to your original state of your humanity. Mm. Okay, so someone watching this at this point, many people watching this are going to be saying, you know, okay, all right, I identify that. I, I know that that, the, that definition of trauma is, re- I resonate with it and I can see it in my own experience in history. What what kinds of guidance or orientation would you give that person initially who says, I want to, I want to do this work. I want to investigate this and, and really do the work. What, what kind of things can be helpful to just know from the beginning about how this process is? Well, this is interesting because I've worked all over the world. I've lived in seven countries and I studied theology and psychology and body work. And it might be because it's my paradigm, but I do see it everywhere. 
people will come to want to heal trauma if they come aware of, I want to get out of this state that I'm in. They will either come in one of three places. I want to do body work because I don't want to talk about it. That's soldiers. They do not want to talk about what they went through. But you have them do an exercise and they're on board with you. Or else you'll have people say, I need to talk about it because I just became aware of it and I need to talk it through. I don't want to do body work because I'm too afraid. I don't want to feel. I just need to talk about it. And other people come because they're having a spiritual crisis. So they're, they, my, my belief in God or whoever, Allah, whoever they believe in, that's being challenged. So think of that. They come in one of the three dimensions of our humanity, body, mind, or spirit. And that's their starting point, their unique starting point. But what I discovered is if you start with them in their starting point, the other two will eventually get included because you cannot change your belief system without feeling more comfortable and safe and wanting to go into your body or talking about it. You can't feel safe finally talking about it without saying, well, I want to feel about it. And how does that change what I believe in? See, so all three of those somehow interact within us. But a person's starting point could be any one of those three places. That is so that I, I, that is so much in my experience as far as working with people. I don't work with people from a trauma standpoint specifically, although it comes into play all the time. I work with people who are going through awakening. And that's exactly that's exactly right. It, the, you can have and, and sometimes I'll tell somebody if, if the awakening itself is the, by far the foremost in their mind, in their heart, in their spirit, in their experience. I point them directly to that because I know after that initial shift in identity, you're going to open up so much space to do this work you're going to have to do, but you're going to have to do it. It's got all this stuff's going to come up in the consciousness like and, and it's a beautiful thing, but it can be surprising how much is there. Uh, so you know, that is one entry point for sure. And then there are people who are so heart-based and they, they you know, I, I find that they tend to, to be more amenable to doing the body work initially and so forth. Um, yeah. And then there, I also like that you pointed out that some people want to talk about it and that's good. You know, it's a therapy entry point and so forth, but that can also become, um, become its own sort of fixation where you're not really getting down into it, but you're talking about it a lot or, you're almost using it as a social currency and a, you know you can get into all these like mind states with other people and you know like be the victim thing and like a lot of stuff can happen but it's like i know all that trauma happened to you but when i'm talking to you i feel that you're not feeling it like i was right. down here let's go down let's get into you know i think that came from the development of the field of psychology because if you think before freud this is all historical but before freud Everybody was body-based. It was an evil demon, or they they gave you some medicine to take that was going to heal you of this trauma. When Freud came along and he pulled us all up into our heads, which was very, very good, now all of a sudden everything became about psychoanalysis. Well, we can go up into our head, which our ego absolutely loves because it's in control up there, see? And so it can spin you around and spin you around and spin you around up there, and you could talk forever. And I, so I have the same experience. When people only want to stay in talk therapy, then I realize what they don't want to do is actually feel what they're talking about. And then that tells me, it makes me say to them, okay, if you're going to heal this fully, as you claim you want to do, we're going to have to include body work. That's an inevitability. 
because there's so much research now that demonstrates that trauma is in the body as well. So as a human organism, neurophysiologically, they are completely connected. There's no such thing as healing neurologically without healing the physiological um, component of whatever that trauma defense mechanism is. That's an impossibility mm-hmm. as a living organism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out something that, you know, could be a little controversial, but I think it's true and worth mentioning is when you mentioned that, you know, someone could become a sort of almost like lifelong uh, therapy patient and it just stays at that level of talking and and storylines and narratives and, and all of it. Um, it's I think it's not only really the, the patient's fault. I think that a lot of not all for sure, but a lot of therapists also live in that space. And they and so they can go. It's a complicity thing, and that can go on and on and on and on. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a social construct, I believe, that's available to us as well. I see this a lot in many, many clinical settings, where the clinical therapist is very clinical and not available to body work at all because they don't have it, or it's not something they studied in or even practiced in themselves. So what they'll do is they'll send their client out and say, "Well, maybe you need to get a massage." Or maybe you need to go run or something like that. So they actually introduce a body intervention to their client, but they don't do it themselves. And so you're right. It yeah. it does keep that spinning going on. Yeah. So once somebody has identified this, maybe their entry point, um, and, and or they're, they're like, you know, I need to get started on this. I, I need to start taking steps and doing the work. Um, how do you recommend they, they, they proceed? Do you, do you tell them, Hey, go, you know, look for a, a, a sort of body modality that, that fits with you also maybe consider therapy. Uh, how do you, how do you guide somebody or how would you guide somebody who's. Well, that's what I do. I sort of say to them, okay, are you, if you want to start with body work, what body works are you familiar with? Cause they could start with maybe just chiropractic adjustment because it's safe, it's medically accepted, it's easy for them, but that's this that's the entry point. But then they might do some yoga or they might get massage therapy because I want them to start where they're going to feel comfortable. Otherwise, they'll resist immediately, see? Um, and so that's what I would do for body work. If it was spirituality, I would say, all right, well, where's your belief system right now? Do you even have one? All right, you you might need to read. What I find in a lot of people in terms of belief systems is they have a belief system before the trauma. The trauma fractured that belief system, and now they want a different belief system. So to put this in context, Catholics, as an example, will now become Buddhists, mm-hmm. okay? Because that belief system now works for them better. And so I try to get them to say, okay, well, where's your belief system? But then how does that belief system filter into your psyche or into your body? Because a lot of people having kundalini experiences, as an example, following the Hindu tradition, and they're not in touch with their bodies at all. So they've overwhelmed themselves with too much energy, and they don't have a container that that knows how to hold that energy. So they end up flooding themselves mm-hmm. into these experiences that aren't integrated at all. Mm-hmm. And so so you just have to find where's their starting point. And I think the real key is to let them know there are there are 10 different body-based therapies that you can use to start with. 
or 10 different um, faith-based practices you can start with, or 10 different forms of psychology or counseling you can start with. Let's look through all of them, and then you try two or three of them to see where where do you start? Where do you feel most comfortable? That's your starting point. Yeah. One, one other aspect I, I wonder if you um, touch into with people when they're kind of starting out on this is one thing that I find compelled to say, especially when it comes to awakening, because like I said, when you blow up in the identity structure, you the boundaries are far less rigid and a lot of stuff comes up. So I tend to tell people early on, just to sort of prepare them, like be willing to be uncomfortable. Like mm -hmm. if you think this is all about immediate healing, so you just feel good all the time and stuff, that that that's more of the same. There are going to be aspects that are just going to be uncomfortable to go through, right? And that's okay. Yeah. What I try to do is, if I say that very clearly as well, if part of this is going to be uncomfortable, but what we want to do is build your level of comfort and safety, mm -hmm. so that you can go into the discomfort deeper and deeper. The more I can build safety and comfortableness, the easier and deeper it is that you're going to be able to go into the discomfort. Mm. See, So I don't want to drive them into that right away because I don't think it would be helpful for them. But we could say, let's start with pleasure and safety, particularly with severely traumatized people. Let's introduce some safety and pleasure into your life so that when you start to go into the comfortable, you have a place in you that you could access that is pleasurable and safe. And then you you go back and forth between the two. Wonderful. What sorts of things do, would you recommend to 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 somebody who doesn't normally have that feeling of safety or comfort? What kind of things might you tell them to explore? And or is that is that giving them more of the ventral vagal response, trying to get them back to the familiarity with that? Yeah. Well, what I try to do is find in anybody, even the smallest little place of comfort that m that might be in their body, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, or if they're alone, a lot of people say, I'm only comfortable when I'm alone in my house by myself and no one else is there. All right, well, that's your comfort place. Now, you can't live in it. So now you have to figure out how how far can you go away from it or for how long can you go away from it before you begin to feel the discomfort and then go back to it. So it's always about modulating the experience. Um, and like even in TRE, as an example, I do the same thing. We're going to go directly into your body here, but we're going to go to the speed and at the level that you feel comfortable. And the minute it starts to feel uncomfortable, we're going to stop. Yeah. And then we're going to titrate that experience. Well, let's perhaps introduce TRE then as this discussion unfolds. Can you give us a little bit of background into how you started to elucidate this this as a process itself, things you saw, experiences you had. Okay, so I was living in Af several countries in Africa and the Middle East that were experiencing rural or political violence. So I had many experiences myself of shootings and bombings and all that sort of stuff. And I was living among a population that was experiencing that as well. This is so interesting, and this is probably the best thing I might be able to say to your audience. I saw the very same thing that all of us have always seen. At one moment, I just simply asked a different question about it. So here's what happened. When we had a, a, um, a missile that went over top of us, some mortar shell or something like that, 
And it came out of nowhere. We were shocked. I was standing with a group of guys. We were just standing there talking. We're in the streets. There are no cars or anything like that. We're just standing there talking. And we hear this mortar shell go over. And all of us immediately went like this. No, that's a fetal response. See, everybody knows that. If a car backfires and you're close by, you're going to go like this. See, everybody, every human organism on the planet does that. It's not culturally determined, see? And so it was that one moment that I I actually saw this. Like, everybody has seen this. No one is confused when I say this. <laughs> right. If you're standing there and a, and a car backfires, you don't do this. Right. <laughs> And why, why not? And so it was the first time I saw this, and I thought, oh my God, the human organism has designed within it a neural pathway that's connected to very specific physiological muscle groups and fascia patterns in the body that can create a fetal response in a second. And it's done without conscious thought. So that means it has to be subcortical, has to be below the cortex. It's got to be the part of the brain that controls breathing and the heart rate, blood pressure, all that sort of stuff. But it has to have a very specific pattern. How else could every human being on the planet, despite their cultural differences, do exactly the same thing, exactly the same way? So that was my first insight. It's like, wow, how did we know to do that? So I needed to study like the neurology, what creates that, and then what was the pattern in there in the body that helps produce that movement. That was the first thing. And so then, and this took a few years for me to figure this thing out. Mm -hmm. The second one was when I was sitting in a bomb shelter and we were we were the a whole group of people, families and that sort of stuff. And when the bombing got close, and it was very terrifying, honestly, the little children, because I had a couple little kids on my laps, and we were all holding the kids, and these were like two-year-olds, and they started tremoring in terror. It felt like I had my hands on their backs. I was holding them. It felt like they were shivering in the cold. It was that kind of, that kind of shaking, but it was terror. And I remember feeling in my hands, and I was mesmerized by this, because I wasn't having the experience, mm. and I was fascinated that they were. So I looked around the bomb shelter, and I saw all the little kids were tremoring like this. All the adolescent children were starting to tremor, but they were trying to control it, mm. and none of the adults were tremoring. Wow. And I thought, holy cow, I'm seeing the uninhibited, alive organism in these two-year-olds that we have learned how to deaden as adults. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if those children are doing this because they haven't developed a defense mechanism to stop it, they're more original than we are as adults. And I want to know, how does that tremor mechanism activate? It activates before, during, or after stressful events, okay? And so I was fascinated, and so then I began putting it together. Wait a second. This fetal response and this tremor response might be connected because there's no way 
in the evolution of the human species that we would have developed an instinct response of defense without having a concomitant instinct response of release, mm. which we would have to, or otherwise we'd get stuck in this state our whole life. And so I began to realize that tremor mechanism is what undoes this fetal response. And it comes from the same subcortical regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. So I actually saw in those two different experiences the complete movement of a pulsating organism towards protection and back towards aliveness. And I began to recognize the human body pulsates. And when it's in defensive mode, the pulsation stops or is inhibited. And when it's in alive mode, the pulsation restores itself. And that this tremor mechanism in the human body is the simplest, easiest access that I have found to actually start to undo the defensive pattern and restore pulsation again. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So... The, the introduction to TRE is right there, that it's, a, it's essentially a, a very straightforward, simple tremoring or shaking sort of exercise. And we'll, we'll get into the mechanics of it, but I, I just want to point out, since I heard about this, I heard it through our mutual friend, Chris, who I've also interviewed on this channel, um, which maybe is now a year and a half ago-ish. Um, since I heard about it, I had so many aha moments with it. One was I figured it out myself about six or seven years ago there was so much energy moving through and it had to do with the awakening realization stuff. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I just found my way into it. I'd go lay on the floor on this very specific carpet and I would just shake. It made sense to do that. It, it felt right. It just, I knew it needed to happen. And I did it for quite a while, actually, intermittently. Um, so I, I, it makes sense energetically. It makes sense physically. And the sooner or later, hopefully at some point, we sort of figure that out. But also I, I saw started seeing it everywhere. First of all, people who are on the autism spectrum, they do stimming, stimming, shaking, stimming. And they, if you ask, they will tell you it feels like the right thing to do. It feels good. It feels like releasing energy. Yeah. Um, then there, there's religious, you know, components of this, the shakers, uh, some Pentecostals, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the shaking, trembling thing. And animals do it all the time. And they also do it proactively in one sense. When every time I see the dogs get up, if they've been laying down for an hour, get up, they stretch it, they shake, and then they just walk on, you know, they yep. do it every single time. Yeah. Yeah. See, th well, that's the, the beauty of this. It's a mammalian trait. So uh, mammals do it. We still have it in us. And my theory is if we were not trained out of it, because listen to our narrative. If you shake, you're afraid, you're weak, you're vulnerable, you're insecure. I can't trust you. Shaking has a narrative that's so negative that we actually train ourselves to stop it. Yeah. If we didn't do that, if we allow children to continue to tremor in childhood, I think it is the self-regulating mechanism that every time their nervous system got aroused for whatever reason, they would be able to bring it back down. We have this in the sexual experience. If you do sexual play long enough, all of a sudden, both men and women, women seem to be more available to it, but their bodies will start to tremor or shake. Because the charge is so big, yeah. it's starting to discharge. So that this discharge can be a pleasurable one. It could be the discharge of coming out of trauma, but it could be the pleasure of building excitement in the body. But once again, it's like the play of this pulsation of a human organism 
The only thing it's charged is, is what you do in your spirituality. You build a charge. That's why you would lay down on the floor and have to discharge. It was nothing but the natural movement. You can find it in every religious tradition. There is tremoring and vibration. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and certainly in more natural cultures down in Peru, doing ayahuasca ceremonies or other um, plant medicine sort of things, they always have shaking in those ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Or the body always shakes. So it's nothing but organic. All I did, which is what we call TRE, as I said, well, can we reproduce this artificially in the safety of my clinical office, as an example, and achieve the same benefits, even if that trauma was 15 years ago? Then obviously I discovered we can. And if we could do it, it had to have been simple. See, it can't be complicated. It should be something that could be replicated easily by itself for the audiences I was working with or the communities I worked with, we were in war. I had to go to southern Sudan, fly into a village, and inside of 10 days is all I had before the next plane would come in. I had to teach 1,500 people how to help themselves release the effects of trauma in their bodies. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought of a couple more examples that I, I've seen. Um, when So I'm an anesthesiologist, and it's not ubiquitous, but it's not uncommon when yeah. someone wakes up from surgery. We, we sometimes say it's the anesthesia. I don't think it's the anesthesia. I think it's the surgery. It's the cutting of the body and all that. They wake up and a lot of people will shake even when their temperature is normal. It's it's just a no right. fact. Also, when women have babies after yeah. childbirth, whether it's casual yeah. childbirth or whether it's through a C-section, shaking is a pretty common physiologic response. Now imagine what the human body is going through as it's trying to birth a child. Of course it would shake. And this is interesting, particularly with the anesthesiologists. There was a lot of, when I've talked to a number of them, they said, well, it's because their body is cold, but you could tell their body wasn't cold. What I think, what my guess would be, is that the body is re-stimulating its own nervous system after it had been anesthetized. Mm -hmm. So it's its way of reactivating itself again, because I work with people even 15 years after an operation, they start to tremor and they'll say, oh my God, I can smell the anesthesia. I can still smell it 15 years later, but after they tremor, it's finally releasing the full defense mechanism that was uh, created when the body was being cut. It doesn't know there's a doctor there doing it and that they're safe. All it knows is it's about to die. And so it actually creates a defense mechanism, even unconsciously. So let's... Let's get into a bit about the technique, uh, TRE. Now, do you generally recommend somebody learn it through videos? That There are videos online you can learn this on your own or use a facilitator combination. How do you recommend people get started with this? I prefer that people actually do it on their own um, because I'm trying to promote it as a self-help technique, etc. However, this depends on where is the person. Are they a little bit afraid? Are they insecure? Do they not? They're not safe going into their bodies. Then definitely they should find somebody at least to take them through it the first time, so they can feel it and see what it feels like and see if they feel safe with it. If there's severe trauma, like if I'm working with people, uh, men or women who are recovering from rape as children, and this is like the first time they've ever started to go back into their body then they need somebody to help them regulate because, unfortunately, traumatized people repeat trauma 
behaviors in their recovery process. So trauma overwhelmed them. They will actually do too much or go too strongly or too quickly and overwhelm themselves with recovery process because mm. they don't know how to regulate. And so in that sense, then definitely I want them to be safe and comfortable. So it is online. It's online for people who can do it by themselves freely mm. and comfortably. And a lot of people can. Um, and we have many of you know people who are certified all over the world for those who really want to be guided through it the first few times. But we usually tell people, look, do it about three times with somebody if you're not feeling secure. They'll help you learn how to regulate it, and they'll help give you objective feedback as to whether you can do this safely by yourself or not. Mm. Because I really think we need a lot more self-help techniques. We need to empower people to heal themselves and not be dependent on clinicians. I, and that just is wrong because I work in an environment where clinicians are not even available. They're non-existent. And I, I lived and worked in situations where it would be impossible anyways. You, in one earthquake, you've got over a million traumatized people. Yeah, yeah. So we're not going to be able to have clinicians work with a million people. So you have to get communities to help each other, families to help each other to recover together. And that's absolutely possible, but we're not promoting that kind of help mm -hmm. or that sort of health consciousness. We're promoting still dependency on professionals. And it, it's out, it's an outdated, fractured mm -hmm. um, paradigm. I, I am with you 100%. I can tell you, you know, just from, from my, you know, experience in medicine, I did primary care, uh, I did a three-year residency in it, but trying to get people to, you know, help therapists therapists and stuff when when they just don't have resources, money or good insurance. It's it's very difficult often, even in the United States and in wealthier areas, forget poorer areas in the United States or places in the world that just have no infrastructure like that. It's yeah, so so to have these available um uh these modalities available to anyone who essentially can can get on the internet, which is almost almost everyone, including very, very primitive cultures, even it's pretty amazing now. So yeah. um, maybe tell us a little bit about how you put it together. How did you design the actual exercise itself? Well, I worked with both um, people who are familiar with body therapies. I did go and get certified as massage therapist because I needed to touch and feel the tissue to understand how this tremor mechanism was moving. But I worked with a neurosurgeon, a good friend of mine, Robert Scare. And um, so we put together sort of neurologically and physiologically what's going on. And then I used other body modalities like Tai Chi and bioenergetics and Qigong. And I looked at how did they move the body? Because they all have tremors in their modalities. Mm -hmm. But what I was looking for was to dissociate it from spirituality or psychology. It's like I just wanted neuroanatomy. That was it. Physiology. And so I took out all of those other things, but I used them to help me figure out what exercise or what posture or position do we need to put the body in that could most easily activate this tremor response, which I call sort of hacking the nervous system. So you actually don't do it consciously, and that's its gift, basically. It's actually accessing a subcortical region of the brain directly just by putting the body into a certain position. 
sort of like when you're lifting weights in a gym and you've got a weight that's a little too heavy and your arms start to tremor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a physio- neurophysiological response. You're not consciously doing it. You do even don't want it to happen, but you've immediately hacked your nervous system that's telling you that's too heavy. Mm-hmm. And so this one is the opposite. We're hacking the nervous system that's telling you, here's how. Here's where I start to begin my release. Mm. So you, you start by fatiguing, at least initially with people who are new to it, by fatiguing the muscles. Very mild fatigue. Yeah. yeah. Because what I do is I have the person in a posture that their body normally isn't in. And then I can go around their normal holding patterns, which are really tight. So I can put them in a posture they're not in commonly. Even Navy SEALs, I worked with a lot of SEALs and Marines. But the posture they're in, which I could describe quickly, is laying on your back. um, And you put the bottoms of your feet together with your knees open, what yoga would call the butterfly or the frog position. But then you pick your pelvis up. See, because that is extending the structure out of its fetal position. Mm. So if you extend and open up the structure in 30 seconds or a minute, you can start to get vibration in the body. Then you can set the pelvis down and then you slowly close the knees and the vibration continues and actually get stronger and starts traveling through the structure. Mm. So it's a posture that you're not normally in, which is its value. Mm. Yeah, so in my own experience of doing this, uh, again, a year, just just over a year ago, I guess, uh, the first time I did it this way. Uh, and that was my experience. The, the first couple of times fatiguing the muscles and having that open, all of that, that was very helpful. But after that, it was I didn't need any of it. It would I, yeah. I can do it like this. And Exactly. You could yeah. sit in a chair and do it. <laughs> See, once we activate that nervous system response, once we've given it back to the body to say it's yours again, start using it, it you can do it in almost any position at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because now we're accessible to it at that point. Yeah. So um, before before we get into, I want to get into a little bit about your experience with how this plays out in people and that, that sometimes maybe challenges that can occur or the you know their experiences people have. I just wanted to ask one question because I'm so curious. When you work with people who say, like like soldiers, military, people who've seen military combat and or first responders, what have you found just overall their experience of it being? Do they find it very accessible and helpful and do they give you feedback that, yeah, this is working kind of thing? Or, Well, I won't use any swear words that I've learned from the military, um, but the, the word that I learned how to describe to say in about 16 languages was weird. This is weird. I just came back from New York, oddly enough, when you're talking about working with first responders, I was training 11 firefighters and EMTs on TRE. They are blown away, see, because they can't believe that this was so easy to do and it immediately went so deeply into their body. And it's like, how do you know this? How, this was like so simple. You didn't do anything. How does this work? And so their curiosity is what drives them further. And I always used to tell people, when you work with soldiers, you have one chance. If you can't do something to a soldier in the first time, they'll never come back again. But if you can and you confuse them, they're coming back for more. 
So the biggest response around the world is, how, how did this happen? We didn't do anything. How does this start like this? And how is it helping my body so much, even in one session quite often? Now, firefighters, EMTs, police, emergency responders, that sort of, they love this because they're pretty well trained already in anatomy. They already know how to um, regulate themselves and they already have a pretty strong relationship because they go through life or death situations a lot together. And that creates a real bonding with people. So they have everything they need to help themselves be safe in this experience. And all I do is reintroduce the tremor mechanism, but all of the other components that they need to use that safely and effectively, they've already developed them. Mm -hmm. So they love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things after Chris told me about this this technique, uh, and and I hear about a lot of different modalities that people tell me, so I I try, I try to like look into them a little bit. But I found a video online, and it was really, really impressive. It was a Navy SEAL who had seen active combat doing a technique, and he in the middle he he allowed them to to put this online. He, in the middle, he started coughing and choking almost. And then afterwards, he described. He said that he 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 knows exactly what that was. There was a time when he was. Um, there was an explosion around a tank and there was smoke and he, I think he actually became unconscious because he inhaled a bunch of smoke. And he said he, he sort of reversed that trauma in that, in that moment of experience. And he said he was really surprised. He was exactly what you said. He was surprised by it, but he was also quite convinced that he felt a massive release, that something finally was released that he would have been holding on to and he didn't know about, which yeah, that, that was, was very clear and obvious. I, that was pretty impressive. I agree. That guy came, somebody sent him to me. I didn't know who he was. That was the first session actually that we did, but I worked two hours on him. But that's exactly what happened when he got knocked unconscious. He's breathing in gas and dust going into his lungs so that when his body tremored, it was able to release something that deep. He literally coughed for like half an hour and he was coughing up all sorts of black stuff that was coming out of his lungs. And that was the chemicals from the explosion. And, excuse me, it helped him breathe more freely, release the trauma. He cried a bit. Um, and, and I asked him at the end, why do you think you cried? And this is so beautiful. He said, I was crying because my body had to go through something this difficult in life. So it's almost like his body was crying itself because it went through such a painful experience of life. It was really quite beautiful. And then he later on became a certified TRE provider to teach other military how to do it. Wonderful. Wonderful. So um, these are a couple of things I've actually been curious about because I, I'm not a facilitator or anything. I just know my own experience. But um, when somebody starts doing this, and let's say they're working with a facilitator because they've had extensive trauma or, or they just feel inclined to, how do you gauge or tell them or advise them on how much they should do and when they may be doing too much and what and or what do you look for in their experience yeah well that would be a little bit of clinical background because i would i would sit next to them while they're laying on the floor and they're tremoring and i would keep conversation with them if i see in their eyes that they're sort of starting to get a little spacey or if i see that they're not really responding well or i could see maybe emotions are starting to come up which are not a problem unless they start to be overwhelming. There's a way that 
just the interrelationship of humanity, like we talked about earlier, that dialogue that keeps them connected to me. And the minute I see they can't stay connected, then something's overwhelming. And so we'll stop the tremors and maybe just talk for like five minutes. When I see they're reconnected, I'll say, do you want to go back to tremor again? So, But see, that's no different than I like taking it out of the clinical thing. Parents learn how to do this when they watch their child at five years old and their child's being overwhelmed. Those parents know that. They can tell before the child cries that the child is disturbed. If we would just go back to being human again and having that human contact and that human perception, you don't need to be clinically trained to do this. We as a human species do this naturally. So when people are doing this type of exercise uh, and they start to perhaps either remember vividly or experience a trauma or they they can relate the movements that are happening in this moment to something in the distant past that feels like that's being processed. Is that okay? Do you do you encourage that? Or or do you just, again do you just look for whether it becomes overwhelming and then back off? Yeah. No, I this is what I do. If they I always tell them, I see your right hip is as an example, your right hip's moving different than your left hip. Does that make any sense in your history? You don't have to tell it to me unless telling me is going to be helpful for you. That happens a lot with military. They don't want to talk about the experience. But I say, well, look, your body's healing it right now. So you might have the memory of it, but you don't want to talk about it. Other people desperately want to talk about it. I say, okay, go ahead, tell me the story. And let's follow as you're talking that story through. Is your body going to change? Is the movement and the tremor mechanism going to change? Is it going to get too strong and overwhelming? Or does it release something where it feels really good and, oh, I got that story out? Because what I discovered is not every trauma that's remembered in the body is necessarily remembered in the brain. Mm. That's not true. There are some things that people say, I don't know what that's from. And I say, that's okay. Your body's still releasing it, so it doesn't matter. And others will say, oh my God, that's from the skiing accident. Or that's from when I was abused as a child or whatever it is. Or when I was getting my divorce. This is the way I used to hold myself. So there, there are so many variations of that. The best way to say it is just be open to allow that whole um, narrative to open itself up. And that includes everything from talking about it a lot to not talking about it at all. But here's what I usually find. If people don't talk about it at all, I try to get them to talk. If people are talking too much, I try to get them to shut up. Because we're really looking, can they go back and forth between those wide parameters of sometimes needing to talk about it, even extensively, and sometimes needing to be silent with it? Mm. See, can they do all of that? Because that's being human again. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for them to be human mm. and fully human, which is embracing all that we are capable of doing. Mm. This may be a bit of a meta meta comment, but I have to reflect that. Like I love, I absolutely love how you let the person guide their own process. And I, I have the same way with awakening. I don't have a magic formula for awakening, but I know you do. I know every individual does, and that they know, they know intrinsically have it within them. And right, um, yeah, that's one thing. The other thing is um, what you said towards the end there. There, there is this sort of happy medium, like. Uh, 
you know, fixation. Fixation is the feeling I get when somebody's been, you could say, traumatized or just identified chronically with something, you know, um, mm-hmm. feels fixated. And so often I'm just kind of nudging people back in the other direction a little bit. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, that's true. See, this is the whole point of that is that I let them lead the session because trauma took that away from them. They weren't allowed to do what they wanted in their own life, um, and something imposed itself on them. So I don't want to impose a healing process and say, I know the way out. I'm just going to say, I think your body and your mind knows the way out. I'm going to watch for any tricks or things that, you know, (laughs) might be repeated patterns. But basically, I'm going to trust that your body and your brain have already got this figured out. And they want to get there. So I'm just going to help facilitate you to move in that direction. That's beautiful. I mean, it's a a sort of um, added bonus to the the direct release of the energy is that that person starts to trust themselves. They just trust themselves. They trust their capacity to heal. To discharge energy, to regulate energy, that's that's really beautiful. You're right. Ultimately, initially, they might need to trust me, but as they get more in touch with themselves, the ultimate healing is that they finally do trust themselves. Yeah. So that's a perfect statement, I think. So uh, another area that I'm really curious about how you deal with, you touched on it, but I would like to go a little bit more in depth is people who have Kundalini um, types of experiences. So. I, there's a huge variation. There are people who really don't get much of any of that. And there are people who I can start talking to in a spiritual way within five seconds, they're, they're twitching and their arms going and they're, ah, ah, they'll make sounds. And like, it's, it's very obvious. And they'll usually say, yeah, I can suppress it if I want to, but something feels very moved to move this way right now. And so some people get a lot of that Kundalini stuff. What do you think that is? And how does that, how would that work in with TRE process? Well, if, this again is um, sort of the dialogue between matter and energy. Okay. And so we could overwhelm a frozen tight structure with a lot of energy. You can do that through meditation practices and, and chanting and, but the structure itself can't integrate it. So it, it becomes overwhelmed by it. And some people, if it was really severe, would have psychotic episodes. And so and so then, well, that's telling me, well, there's not a balance because the human organism can move kundalini energy, if you will, through it. It's designed to do that. So if it's not doing that in a healthy, functional way, then I want to look at that because they've already accessed this amazing energy capacity in them and this field, this energetic field, so my job is to try to help them. How can we help the structure of the human organism? How can we soften that and open that up enough, get rid of all the patterns that are tight inside of it so that beautiful energy can learn through the structure in a way that you have this really powerful experience. This is what plant medicines to do. They often soften the structure which then allows the energy flow to go through it more easily. So again, it's playing back and forth. Can I read you a quote yeah, that I have on this, which I love? This is a quote from Rupert Sheldrake. A lot of people don't remember him, but he wrote a lot about energy years ago. This is what he says. He said, consciousness or energy manifesting as matter 
is the human experience. Our game, our task, and our joy should be in the movement and the interplay between these two experiences rather than preferring one to the other. It is the interplay that is important. And he's talking about we are matter and we are energy. We shouldn't be one or the other. We should enjoy their dialoguing back and forth in this three-dimensional plane we find ourselves in. And it's this movement back and forth that is truly embracing this three-dimensional experience. It is not just this one nor this one. It's when they interplay and we enjoy that interplay pleasurably. And I think that's what the tremor mechanism does is it stimulates the energetic field to start to move and it moves through dense matter. And what it's doing is loosening the density of matter and it's it's the body itself playing, in a sense, with itself, with its own energy movement and its own physical structure. And if you just lay there and let yourself tremor, the play is already happening. Mm. We just now become the observer of, oh, this is what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. So when someone starts out with this, would you recommend them doing it daily or how do you, how do you guide the free? Yeah, that's. That's a little bit of a problem because we keep looking for these recipes on uh, how to do this. So what I'm looking for at the beginning is I tell people, well, just do it for 15 minutes, maybe even less than that. Because what they've got to do is find where their baseline is. Where are they comfortable? And so do it for 15 minutes and then don't do it the next day at all. Because even 15 minutes today, you might discover tomorrow is when it starts to integrate and you feel something happen. Then do it the next day for another 15 minutes. Now, do that for a few times so that you can regulate where are you most comfortable starting with this new experience that you're having in your body or introducing to your body. And then you build from there. But you could build up to where you do it every day for 15 minutes, as an example, or some people half an hour. And then after 10 days, you feel exhausted. Now, that's just an indicator that you're going faster than the organism can integrate. See, it's like getting a deep tissue massage every day. That's exhausting after a while. You can't do it because we need integration time. So again, it's about pulsation. And so I tremor, I expand pulsation, but the body will contract after that. Then I tremor again. And so I'm asking everybody, find your speed of pulsation. And that's your recipe of how often you should do this. And that recipe will change. Mm, Wonderful. Wonderful. That's exactly my experience as well. I'll add one other thing, and maybe you can tell me if you've seen this as well. One one thing I I will tell people often if I recommend this is um, don't do it in the late evening. I did it one time in the late evening, and I I didn't sleep. Like It was very hard to go to sleep, but I wasn't actually trying to go to sleep. I felt very relaxed completely relaxed, no thoughts, laying in bed, fine. But the body was, I don't know, activated, I suppose, because I, I, it was just really obvious. I'm like, okay, I always, if I do this, I do it in the morning. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because that's also different for people. Some people find it, like you said, very relaxing, both in their brain and in their bodies and it helps them fall asleep. Other people are energized by it. But listen to the paradox you just said, which I love. I was completely calm 
but the organism itself had a lot of energy flowing through it. So it wouldn't sleep, see? And so I love that paradox um, that the organism itself can have dual experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's what living in in a human body is about, actually having all this. So you're right. If if it if it keeps you awake, then don't do it. If it gives you energy, do it in the morning when you wake up, yeah. and then you're good for the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the last question I wanted to ask about technical aspects: when somebody starts doing this, or maybe they've been doing it a while, if you see the this uh, the tremors sort of being uh, staying, say in the legs, where it's kind of where you start when you first learn this, or maybe even in the psoas muscle, but down low not really moving up the body. Is that is that an issue? Would you recommend they would you recommend something to see if you can get it up into higher spaces in the body, et cetera? Yeah. That's a perfect question, actually. And I I did put a video specifically on my YouTube channel, how to facilitate the movement of the tremor mechanism through parts of the body that it doesn't go through. It's very, very common for people to get tremors in their legs, maybe up to their waist, and then it doesn't go up the body. Because we have tight diaphragms, we have tight chest cavities, tight shoulders, because we live mostly up in the upper part of our body, sort of tremor in the legs. So I tell everybody, this tremor mechanism can go through every fascial pattern and every muscle group in your body. If it is not, then we want to figure out why not and try to see what intervention can we make that's going to help facilitate the tremor mechanism to move through the structure. So I developed 13 self-help interventions, which I put on my YouTube channel, right as soon as COVID happened because people were now stuck at home doing TRE and they weren't able to go to a group or their clinician or whatever. But yes, there are different postures you can put the body in, different movements you can make to try to facilitate the tremors. So I tell people, activate the tremor first, and then I give them these different um, self-help interventions to say, Try to facilitate it moving through your body because I prefer them do that than me doing hands-on interventions with them because I want their bo- I want them to learn how to inhabit their body mm-hmm. and not become dependent on an external intervention, but to make their own because I think once the body learns how to do it by itself, it's learning how to restore itself back to aliveness, which it can do without the developing a dependency on an external um, source. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Is there anything else you think would be valuable for somebody who's just getting introduced to this here before we give, you know, the give out your, your YouTube channel and resources? Yeah. No, I think the only thing I ever want to tell people all the time is this is your mechanism. You're genetically encoded with it. At least explore it once to see why you have it in you and does it have any value to you? It may not, but don't think that this is for someone else, not if it's genetically encoded in you. It might not be for you right now, but it is you. So you should know how to activate it, how to use it, how not to use it when you don't want to, and how to facilitate it so that you can use it to continue to stay sort of as alive and as connected as you can be in your living organism. Because that is the only place that we will ever, ever find happiness. It really comes 
from being connected to ourselves has nothing to do with external environment. Beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I wanted to piggyback one thing onto what you said, and that is, this goes back a little bit to where we started with the social constructs, but um, yeah, I would, I would encourage anyone to really explore this uh, because there is a lot of habituation, especially in children, to, to really create a, a, a contracted and very stereotyped set of movements th for the human body. You know, sit still when you're in school, don't twitch, don't, don't, you know, quit shifting around, you're disturbing the other students. So we learn through, you know, through social um, pressure and all these different things to stop moving, to only move certain ways. And if people are very kinesthetic, that's really hard for them. The, the sort of standardized yeah. school, you know, environment's very difficult for people who are very kinesthetic, I've noticed. Yeah, we are trained from a very early age to dissociate and freeze. Mm -hmm. And like you said, right in the school system, it's already built in there. Yeah. So this is just a, the opposite of, all right, well, let's get the pulsation back in there because the human organism can do that. I don't care how much restriction you've had in your life or even trauma, because I've worked with people with extremely severe trauma, the body is like, no, I can come out of this. I can do this. Give me my mechanism. Give me my tremor mechanism. I know I know my way out of here. Mm -hmm. And it can do it. There's nothing that can stop this human organism from pulsating itself back to aliveness. It can't, not only can it do it, it's genetically designed to do that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. That's so, yeah, it hardens me that, that people who've had really, really, really bad trauma and that you've worked with, I know, and I've met many um that they there's there is a way out of living you know with that all that repressed trauma so, yeah yeah so what resources should i point people to i'll put them under this video any links you want should i send them just directly to your youtube channel do you have an introductory playlist or what's the best way to get people yeah um send them to my youtube channel i could give you like the link if you want to that one video on uh, um uh, how to make self-help interventions. And I could give you the link to the video of the exercises that we have free online. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put those links and then I'll put uh, put your YouTube channel so they can find everything. Yeah, okay. Are, you want me to send you those links? That would be awesome, yeah. I'll send them to you in a few minutes. Sure. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. People are going to get a lot out of this. I already know. And so. Went to some fun places, so... Yeah. Thanks for all of the amazing work you've done out there, the countless people who have benefited and been taught to trust themselves and, and release their own trauma and, and will continue to do that work. It's kind of like a, a ripple effect, right? There's a lot of facilitators out there now. I love that you work with large groups of people so that they can learn it themselves and maybe become facilitators. And it's a very cheap to free modality. Well, it's a free modality. And even if yeah. you want some help with it, it's very reasonable. So yeah, yeah. I really appreciate the work you've, you've done. And you too. Thanks a lot for all the work you do. You're getting it out there. You're getting everything out there. I went to your your website too and looked at all this stuff you're doing. Great stuff. Thanks. Let's just keep moving on. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Okay. It has been for me too. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.